special crossover episode of Deviant Women. Uh, we are your hosts. My name is Lauren. And I'm Alicia. Thanks for joining us once again for episode 13. I know, lucky 13, hey? Yeah, we are both 13 babies, so... That's right. We don't have 13 babies. No! Almost sounded like... And we're like... not one of 13. No. What I mean is we were born on the 13th. That's right. So it's a lucky number yeah, for us. That's not an unlucky true. number, so... Yeah. And we're also going to have another special guest today who we will get to soon. First of all, we'll just, I think, maybe give you a little bit of an idea of what it is we're going to be talking about. Yeah, we're talking about Margaret Atwood's The Handmaid's Tale. So a novel that Atwood wrote in the mid-1980s, which has been very recently turned into a Hulu television series. Yeah, and suddenly seems very portentous. Like, I think even despite the Hulu show, the sales of The Handmaid's Tale skyrocketed once Mm. Trump became the the nominee for the Republican Party. (laughs) Even before the show was out. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And, of course, they started making the show before the Trump presidency as well. So. Interesting, though, to see how the parallels are starting to arise. Yes, and hopefully we'll, we'll discuss that a yeah, bit I in think today's we'll show. A bit. But for those of you who aren't familiar with The Handmaid's Tale, it's probably worth us just giving you a little bit mm. of information about the world that we're talking about. If there is anyone left who doesn't if know. Because like, it feels like it's everywhere right now. Yeah, but, you know, I haven't watched the show. I've only read the book. And the other thing as well is also contextualising why uh, we think it fits into our Deviant Women podcast yeah. in the first place. Because we're not necessarily focusing on one of the characters this week. We're actually really wanting to discuss a lot of the themes that arise in terms of how the women are portrayed and treated in yeah. society. And the world that's created yeah. In, yeah. in this book. We're in the world of Gilead. Gilead seems like a really rad place. <laughs> that's Super that great. That's sarcasm. Number one travel destination of the future, everyone. That's sarcasm. <laughs> no, it sounds awful. Yeah, it's I not mean, a good place. We don't know a lot about how Gilead rose to power, but we know that there was some kind of like... A coup. coup. There was Is a it coup. a coup? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so it is a coup. Um, some kind of religious extremist group have decided that we need a total overhaul of society because there's a fertility crisis. Women aren't having babies anymore. And um, even when they do, there's really high rates of miscarriage and uh, stillbirth. stillbirths and things. So the world is in crisis. And a lot of these sort of problems with fertility are linked to environmental mm. toxins Environment, yeah. and chemical The crises. rise of nuclear waste and mm. pollutants. And, if only we would listen, but yeah. Yeah. And again, it's really interesting that she wrote this in the mid '80s, in 1984. Yes, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And of course, a lot of these fears are Such very relevant big, now. Not, and it's yeah, it's really not even just the gender issue. The environmental issues that she's talking about are hugely important again, and terribly frightening. Yeah, and so under in, the current American regime. <laughs> and so, in terms of the fertility crisis. What this basically does in the world of Gilead is it leads to a horrendous situation for women. Yeah. Full stop. Women, any woman who is considered fertile is basically kidnapped and... 
forced into being a baby making machine. So this is where we see the total complete reduction of women to their biological state. Yeah. Which is it's not the first time this has happened. No. In history, it's what not. a surprise. Women are associated with their biological functions yeah. and reduced to an economic capacities of their bodies, yeah. which is sadly not a Uncommon? new concept. No. It's something, something that happens right now. That's right. Like it's so, not even in just in our distant history. No. And um, our key figure in the story is, because it's called The Handmaid's Tale, is a handmaid. Called Offred. Called Offred. And a handmaid is basically one of these fertile women who have been basically kidnapped into providing babies mm. for higher echelons of yeah. society. Margaret Atwood mentioned, because, of course, it was a religious sort of coup that's got us into this world, and Margaret Atwood talks a lot about the biblical story of Jacob and his two wives yeah. and the handmaids this comes as up a lot. her sort of inspiration for this scenario that we find ourselves in, in mm-hmm. the world of Gilead. So this basically means that the handmaids will provide children but those children are no longer theirs. They belong to they belong the, to the wives. Yeah, the wives and the the commanders really. These the are officials. the powerful elite in this society. Yeah. So these men have complete and total power. Their rights are the only, basically, the only rights that anyone has. Even the wives of the commanders. Someone like Serena Joy, who is the wife of the commander in Offred's story, she's somebody who was really supportive and instrumental in the development of this regime change. Mm. And she still ended up being kind of screwed over because I, I don't think she quite realized the what hole that happen? she was digging herself. Yeah, exactly. The, Dig that hole. The way that she lost even the power that she has as the wife of an elite man. Yeah. So so I think we've kind of painted as much of this world as we can without giving too much away. We should say, of course, that if you're going to listen to all of this episode today, you will get some spoilers. Yeah. So if you haven't read the book or watched the show and you're planning on doing that sometime soon, then maybe you should hold off on listening to this episode right now. However, if you don't care, yeah. then listen and not, away. I don't think we'll do any major spoilers. It's just a couple of things that might prop up. We'll, yeah. try, we'll try to avoid it as best we can. So the reason why we are talking about this under the umbrella of our Deviant Women podcast is because the world that we find ourselves in of Gilead, women are valued for their fertility. And this, of course, means that having any thoughts outside mm. of this, outside of your role, and makes it, you pretty deviant. In this world, you are women are not even allowed to read That's right. right. And so it's absolute, like complete power and complete agency have been taken away from women and they are their bodies. And this brings us back to this whole idea of women as being the body, mm. women being that Biological association with function. Yep. With nature and men as being the mind, men as being the ones who are in charge of any kind of action of decision-making of it's that old binary of mind, body, like, nature culture converse culture exactly this is the extreme version of that but this seems really extreme to us because i think it's really hard to imagine how a society might end up here but outward paints are quite an interesting picture of how we got here and the tv show really developed like it takes us to the world that we live in now and it's kind of frightening to see a realistic depiction of how this actually might happen. Mm. And so to help us unpack all of that, we're going to welcome Justin. Justin from the Mayday podcast. So we have Justin with us from Mayday, the Handmaid's Tale fan podcast. Hi, Justin. How are you guys doing? Ladies, how are you ladies doing? See, I said guys. It's so good. It's so good. 
good. Yeah, we're really good. We're a bit cold. It's winter here in Australia. Um, and it's the future. <laughs> it is. It's a different day, a different season. And it's all very strange to me. How many <laughs> fortnights away? Is... Well, this was a thing. I've been to America a couple of times. I have American friends. However, this fortnight thing has never come up before in my life. I didn't realize you, really? don't, you guys don't work in fortnights. <laughs> uh, well, we do. We just don't say the word, apparently. Yeah. I will say the other night we talked about it, and I think it's a better word. I think it's a better way to say it than like every two weeks or every other week. So is that what you'd say? You'd just say every two weeks? Yeah. It's not nearly as descriptive as Fortnite. I no, right? Feel. It doesn't quite sound as elegant, a Fortnite. It's, it's much more specific. It's very exact. I understand that it's yes, very Yes, it is exact, very exact. But it's not as pretty. You can also call it a Senite if you wish. A That's senite? much more archaic, but it means the same thing apparently. But we don't use that. <laughs> well, we should. We'll bring that back into vogue. I bring it back. I think. It's a senightly podcast. <laughs> Deviant women. Well, I have the same ring to it. <laughs> Since we're going to be talking today about The Handmaid's Tale and delving into a world that does actually take us back to some more archaic sort of ideas. Certainly not. Then I think it might be appropriate yeah. to talk about. Because, of course, you guys like to deconstruct the episodes of the Hulu version that's happening at the moment. Hasn't been released as yet in Australia, but it's coming out Real very, very soon. shortly here. So there's definitely some Handmade Tales fans eagerly awaiting its release here in Australia. How have you found the reaction to the series so far over in the States? Well, I can tell you that the critical and fan reaction has been nothing short of extremely positive. No one was really sure because this is really Hulu's first successful, commercially successful and critically successful <laughs> I like overall. that you chucked successful in there. <laughs> well, they've had other good original programming, but nothing that has broken out. Like they've yeah. done, Stephen King had a, they did an adaptation of his novel 112263, which is mm -hmm. fantastic. And the miniseries is fantastic. But again, it didn't resonate. And it's also not quite as widely known as yeah. Atwood's book. So I don't think it really had as, as much exposure. I wonder if one of the other things that makes The Handmaid's Tale so popular at the moment is because it no longer seems unrelevant. The themes that are arising in the show are themes that a lot of people, a lot of women are becoming very concerned about today. You know, we're seeing this return to a lot of restrictive policies about women's like rights over their bodies and reproduction. So... I mean, you, you're from the US. We are, we're, we're like distanced, wide, goggly-eyed observers <laughs> to the weirdness, yeah, <laughs> that is happening. As we get in the conservative time machine yeah. and go back to 1950. Yeah, it definitely has played a role. The timeliness of it is kind of uncanny. And I don't think you probably could have released this show at a, I'm not going to call it better time, but at a more opportune time I'll yeah. say, for them to take advantage of all the things that just kind of came together that obviously they didn't plan on it. It's not like they were rigging the election. <laughs> leave that to the Russians. <laughs> so yes, I absolutely agree that and all of this uh, cracking down on the women's rights, all of that stuff has been slowly kind of creeping in the last few years. As you see the conservatives take over more of the state's there are more governors, there's more congresses are run by the majority of conservatives. And so you're seeing this crackdown on reproductive rights and even going down to things like immigration. And all those things are touched on in the Atwood story. So it really, along with government 
and the election and having Hillary Clinton and Trump running together and these polar opposites, it definitely lent itself to this story. And so I think it just came along at the right time. Well, when Margaret Atwood was writing The Handmaid's Tale, it was in a time of Reagan politics. So obviously, you know, this was a time in America where that whole conservative mindset was coming to the fore again. And there was concern about this sort of far right politics coming back into vogue. Atwood herself was living in West Germany. Oh, sorry, West Berlin Berlin. at the time when she wrote the novel. But, of course, that sort of Reagan-era politics really fed into that idea about conservative right-wing politics Mm. coming back to the fore. Yes, and it's all kind of come full circle, I'd say, right back to... I think if you ask the conservatives here, they champion the Reagan era as that, uh, you know, golden era of their political viewpoints. So I think this, again, coming out at this point in time is just very um, prescient, I guess, yeah. for lack of a better term. Well, it, especially because when they started making the show, I've seen a lot of online commentary, particularly from conservatives, who are quick to suggest that this show is being made in response to... Trump's presidency. And it's, uh, of course, it's not. This is a book that was written in the mid 80s and that production began on during the run up to the election at a point when Trump was not even the nominee, was he, at that point? I don't think. Well, I know they were working on it last year. They started shooting it. So I know they were kind of, if you listen to the stories, it's very interesting. If you've ever read any stories about them shooting it, they were like kind of wrapping up almost towards the end of shooting, I believe, when the election night happened. Mm. And so they have all these tales of all these people. Because obviously, you know, if you're working on the set of The Handmaid's Tale, generally speaking, you probably know where your politics lie. Yeah. Mm. So they tell the story about, you know, sitting around and just being kind of like the rest of everyone else, I think, just kind of being completely blown away by what was going on. Yeah. Maybe we should actually just talk a little bit about The Handmaid's Tale itself and about the world that Atwood has created here to think about some of these parallels. And I'm sure that most people are very familiar with the book and or the show, but maybe we should just give a little bit of background about what is this world of Gilead that Atwood has manifested in her mind that is, I mean, obviously it's an extreme version of what is happening here, but something that I find interesting is about the way that Atwood talks about her writing in the sense that she doesn't call what she does science fiction. A lot of people are quick to label The Handmaid's Tale a science fiction work, and same with Oryx and Craig, but she calls it speculative fiction, and she defines the difference between the two as science fiction being an extrapolation of things that aren't possible yet, so space flight, aliens, monsters, all that kind of stuff, whereas speculative fiction is taking what is already happening on Earth, the problems that already exist. The technology that already exists. Yeah, and the politics that already exist and thinking about where they might end up. Yes. And that's what's really interesting about The Handmaid's Tale because even though it seems like it's this really messed up dystopian world, there's nothing in it that hasn't happened in history at some point. And really, it's not difficult to see how a society might end up there. You are exactly correct. And yeah, she is quick to make the point that it is speculative fiction, which is very interesting. I had not, before I started doing some research for our podcast, I did not realize that that was what she considered it. And I don't know that I necessarily considered it science fiction, even when I read it. And I am a pretty avid science fiction person. I just kind of considered it a dystopian novel more than anything. I wouldn't even 
have tried to put it in the sci-fi label. Mm. But the world she lays out, it doesn't really have the technology or any of that stuff. So what you're seeing is an extrapolation of all the things that she was seeing going on. And you are exactly correct when you say there's nothing in it that hasn't happened to anyone. And I think the reaction when you tell people that is that most people will watch this and be like, oh, this could never happen. Mm. But all the things that are happening in this show have happened in some society in the world at some point. And some of it is still happening. Some of it's happening right now. (laughs) Yes. Which is frightening. That has been a very interesting discussion that has come up and that has been raised several times, both in a productive and non-productive way, as you can imagine, given the current political climate, that people are quick to point out this is the reality for a lot of women in Middle Eastern countries and yeah. a lot of people are quick to jump on Islam, but there's it is not exclusive to that. And even things like the way that surrogacy is used by a lot of Western women who are seen to be taking advantage of women in developing countries who do end up kind of becoming baby machines for money. Yeah, that's true. The surrogacy industry itself is sort of also implicit in this sort of women's reproduction as a means and as a reduction to that economic sort of... And honestly, that is a great point because that is not an angle that we even have discussed on Mm. our show. And that's an interesting way to look at that. And I had not thought about that. That particular point I remember reading for Atwood came from the whole Lebensborn project during World War II, where there was that whole encouragement of unmarried women to leave their children at these sort of adoption centers. And they would be adopted out to good, pure Aryan couples. There was an encouragement in you were given rewards if you actually would have good, pure Aryan children. So, (laughs) So Margaret Atwood actually kind of pulled this idea idea again because as we're saying she was living in uh, West Berlin at the time in the aftermath of that and she pulled in a lot of those sorts of ideas so that's another place where that kind of concept comes from it comes from it's when you start really thinking about it it's actually really frightening the huge range of potential places of inspiration that this stuff comes from because it is again Gilead seems like this really far-flung dystopia but when you break it down like that it's easy to see that like This happens right now in our world. Yeah. So Gilead that we're talking about in terms of The Handmaid's Tale, so this is, we know that this is sort of Massachusetts, right? Yeah. And the show makes this clear to us. I don't know. So this is the thing as well is that I'm the one here who actually hasn't watched the show as yet. (laughs) So I can only assume that the show makes this sort of concept as clear as the book does. Um, And holding on to this idea that the birthplace of this sort of really Puritan American sort of 17th century the building of America there in this sort of Massachusetts melting pot. So I don't know if that's something that plays a role in the show itself. Sure, it does. Uh, They, as far as the show goes, I'm trying to remember because there is not, I know in the book they kind of lay breadcrumbs for you to follow until they review the big reveal of what is going on. Obviously in the show, that's not going to work as well. So I'm trying to remember that I don't believe that they outright come and say it right away. There's a lot of things in the show where you're not really sure where they're at. And I think that's on purpose because I think part at the beginning when June slash Offred is taken into custody by the people in Gilead, there's some thinking that maybe they have taken them farther away from where they were first captured. Mm-hmm. And so you don't really know where exactly they're at. In the book, I know... And she doesn't know. Yeah, she doesn't know. And... And even there's a part where her and Moira, Mm. 
who is played by Samara Wiley, who is amazing. There's not enough of her in the show. Oh, I agree. She's amazing. She's awesome. And there's a part where they're going to escape and they walk out and they're not even sure where they are because all the street signs are gone. All the billboards have been taken down. All the buildings look completely different because they've basically taken anything that is art, that is any form of free thought, advertising, corporate, anything, and taking it down, and they're actively burning it while they're burning walking it, yeah. through. Yeah, it's yeah. like burning in fountains and in, like, yes. I don't know if anyone knows of the Bonfire of the Vanities, but this is something that happened in Florence in the sixteenth, late 16th century. A friar named Savonarola, he wanted to return to these very puritanical values. He saw the church as being really corrupt, and he flushed out Florence and got everybody to bring all of their jewellery and their artwork and everything into the streets, and they burnt it all. And it really upsets me because Botticelli was a follower. And I just think, oh, my God, I can't imagine what Botticelli burnt of his own works. (laughs) It just breaks my heart to think what art was lost because of that. And it all just goes back to like this mentality of after these kinds of things happen and after years and years and years, you look back on it and you go, how did it even get there? Yeah. And that for this show is part of I won't call it fun. Because I will tell everyone, this show is not what you would label as fun. This is not a, like, hey, let's go watch this and hang out. No, it's (laughs) a heavy, heavy viewing experience. I swore at the television a number of times. And I gasped. And I... It's shocking. And it takes a lot of what's in the book and really extends it into places that are completely faithful to the core of the book. But in really, quite often, quite shocking ways. But maybe we should just... So Gilead, well, itself is the new nation that was the former United States. I think the United States is now only Alaska and Hawaii. Correct. The last two vestiges. Did you mention that? And it's interesting because while they do give you little bits of that information, I love the way they do it because it's only through the dialogue of random conversations. You don't get it like, this is exactly what happened and here's how it went. Mm. They don't give it to you very easily. Nothing in the show comes easily at all uh, everything comes at a price yeah. and there's been some sort of coup by the baptists is that uh well uh, now as a former baptist i like to call myself a recovering baptist <laughs> i will say that uh in the book one of my favorite things in the book is the fact that the baptists are actually fighting this regime right and they are part of like the rebellion which i remember when i was reading i was like wow if the baptists are fighting these people then we are in trouble okay because that always confused me <laughs> yeah there is never an outright labeling of what religion this is probably a good Mm. thing there are also the quakers leading an underground rescue mission across the border to canada so the the female railroad the handmaid's railroad and i guess the marthas as well they do help the marthas as well and i was unaware of that part i didn't remember that part of the book and my wife reminded me of that but yeah Mm. so we keep talking about the they and obviously we're we're talking a little bit about you know whether or not that they are Baptists, we're sort of ascertaining that they're they're not. not. (laughs) So how does the show reveal who this they is? How does the show set up who is actually in charge of making these changes? How does this come about? Does the show reveal this early on for us or is this something that we're piecing together slowly? It's pretty clear, I think, just simply because Offred is in the commander's house. Right. And you know that he is a powerful man within this regime and that's sort of set up, I think. Yes, that's set up. The first, I was telling Lauren the other night when we did our initial hey let's talk before we talk conversation that the first three episodes are very important 
because what they do in the first three episodes is they are very much laying out the foundation of what Gilead is and how terrible this situation is for all of the women involved. And while you do get an idea of who is in charge, you don't necessarily get an idea of why right away. Like Atwood in the book really, like I said, gave you breadcrumbs and made you kind of work for it. And that was really the payoff in the book for me was how did we get here? Yeah. So I want to come back to Alfred and her depiction in the show versus the book. And it is her conscious voice that we're reading the whole time. Obviously, that's different in the show. And these voiceovers do offer us some of that insight into her character. But she's, I feel like we need to kind of just set up. So Offred is a handmaid. I, I really don't think that you'd probably be listening if you didn't know that already. But okay. Offred is the handmaid. She's found herself in the commander's house after spending some time at the Red Center being trained to be a handmaid. It's all terrible. She hates it. But we get a little bit of snarkiness from her in the TV show. In the book, I think that she is less so. There's hints of it, but it's subtler, I think. Whereas in the show, she uses her voiceover to inject a lot more sarcasm. They depict her as this woman who you kind of imagine as having been very intelligent and maybe a bit sarcastic, funny, a feminist probably in her life before, but someone who doesn't necessarily know how to rebel or how to act in a very forward, action-driven way. You know, she is quite privileged, and I think a lot of her snarkiness is reactionary, but still reveals the sense that she doesn't want to be where she is. Obviously, she doesn't want to be where she is. None of them want to be where she is, but she doesn't really know how to rebel in any way. So she just has this inner monologue of rebellion. You know what I mean? Absolutely, and that's a completely accurate assessment. She, what you'll notice about her is that her rebellion and her rebellious attitude does not come naturally to her. And I think that was also the case in the book, but you're right about the the inner voice for sure is a little more, I think, updated for modern times in that we're a little more sarcastic society, I'd say today, than we were in 1985. And I think the updating of that and the things that she's thinking and saying inside her head are more for the updating the adaptation to now than it yeah. was really to tweak the character. But when you do flashbacks to her prior to the takeover of Gilead, she is not someone who is particularly rebellious. Moira certainly seems more so. Yes, Moira plays that role. And Moira is her best friend, and they have been friends since college. She's the one that's played by Samara Wiley from Orange is the New Black. And when you do flashbacks of her, she is definitely the one that is kind of the confident one, that is the brash one, that is driving, has that rebellious attitude. So that's really interesting. So I'd like to pick up on Moira for a second because Moira, in the book, she's a very rebellious, she's very outgoing, very independent character. In the book, her character takes a turn and she ends up somewhere where we don't necessarily expect her to. No. So how far into Moira's story have we come in the Hulu version? Uh, in the Hulu version, you get a little bit of her in the beginning and then... She disappears for several episodes and you're kind of left wondering, I think, intentionally by the show, is she are we getting her back? <laughs> because actually a difference in the show is that Janine tells Alfred that uh, Moira is dead. Yes, that is very early on. It's like episode maybe two or something two, like I that, think. I think. Yeah. 
Yeah, the salvaging because that's the first time. Uh, yeah, they salvaging. bring that really far forward. The salvaging. Ooh, that's missing. Yeah. <laughs> but that's about that setting up the world. Like, this is the reality of yes. what this place is. So, yeah, Moira's character is tweaked slightly. And there are some things that they changed in the adaptation that, like Lauren was saying, that it's a faithful adaptation. But they did have to extrapolate some things and kind of tweak some things to make the story work. And I didn't feel like anything was out of the realm of normalcy because the question that i want to ask and this is a huge spoiler alert is that does she still end up a prostitute yeah she's ends up with the jezebels yeah Yeah, so she ends up a jezebel she does end up with the jezebels and we see a little bit more of this club and the commander's role in bringing her to the club i don't know i it was definitely still creepy and seedy in the book (laughs) but in the show like the oh god it's like you are creeper number one like sarah on our show has called it because there is a point where moira and offer reconnect at jezebel's and there's a point where she's walking down the hallway and it's kind of to give you this glimpse of what is going on at jezebel's and all the freaky crazy things that are going on sexually with the commanders and all these women there and i believe sarah called it the second creepiest hallway of all time next to the hallway in the shining <laughs> Um, so that kind of gives you an idea of how it is really terrifying. You have to be prepared for it. <laughs> I was just thinking you you use the term that Moira ends up as a prostitute. That's really not even accurate because these women are sex slaves. They're not in Jezebel's by choice. After she escaped from the Red Center, she held one of the aunts hostage with a little shiv that she made. Toilet shiv, it's your favorite weapon. Yeah, and she had the choice, the colonies, where she'd have to clean up toxic waste and die, or the Jezebels, where, like she says, she gets a couple of good years uh, before, <laughs> I think she, as a quote, before a pussy wears out, and then it, she leaves in the back of a van anyway. Eat first. Yeah, yeah. None of these women have choice. They are sex late. And this, so this is an interesting point, because... The Jezebel's Club to me really represents that, <laughs> I'm sorry to use this word, but like the epitome of that kind of male privilege, the, the, of that power group, right? This is a bunch of men who have reconstructed the entire country based on these religious puritanical ideas. And then this hypocrisy exists where they get to have their wives, they get to have their handmaids, and that's not enough. They still need the equivalent of their mistresses, the women who they can do all their perverse sexual desires, all of these double standards that have existed since forever, right? Absolutely. And the Jezebels is the epitome of that. It is. And we talked about that several times in our show about the phenomenon of, well, it's not good for everybody else, but it's okay for me because Mm. I'm smart and intelligent and I know how to control myself and I know that I can still do the quote the right thing and still be a good upstanding citizen even though i'm doing all these creepy terrible things on the side and so Mm. yeah we definitely have talked about that being one of the overarching themes of just the hypocrisy of you know laying out the society where you said one thing but do another completely yeah when i'm watching the show i've thought to myself i wonder where i would rather be as a as a woman in this society would I prefer to be a wife? Would I prefer to be a... I mean, I don't think I would be. I, I don't have that high of a social standing. I wouldn't end up as a commander's wife. So the choices that are... Well, not really choices. I was actually going to make that point. So I read something very interesting. It was kind of just stuck in an interview I read one day before we were doing a show. And it was... I forget. I think it was New Yorker or New York Times that somebody interviewed Abwood. And they asked her about offered being a handmaid and referred to something about a choice. Did she have a choice to be there? And she said she actually did have a choice. 
And that was the first mm-hmm. time I had heard that. And she said she actually did have a choice. She could either become a handmaid or go to the colonies. Yeah. And what kind of a choice is that, though? Right. Is that a choice? But it's not a good one. It's not a choice. You know, it's like, oh, so you get to live and get raped a couple of times a month. Or we can send you to this toxic waste dump. Exactly. I don't, I don't think that's a choice. <laughs> That is not a choice. I mean, it's a terrible choice. Same with Moira. She had the same terrible choice. Exactly. So does Offred's mother feature? No. Offred's all right. So that's not, a- not mentioned at all. Okay, no. so that's an interesting difference because, of course, in the book, Offred's mother is a very important sort of figure in that um, in the book she does go to the colonies. Mm. Yes. And Moira sees her on the video. The video. They, they see like her in the video. Snuck out from the colonies. I take that back. She is mentioned one time in the flashback to when... Her and Luke and Hannah are trying to do their initial escape. There is a man that is trying to help them escape from the county. That's how bad things are. I remember watching the show and mm. the fact that they were just trying to get out of the county that they lived in was like this harrowing mm. Yeah, not even the country. Yeah, not even the country, yeah. just getting out of the county. And so there is a man mm. who is an older guy, older gentleman, probably in his 50s or 60s, who is going to drive them and basically stuffs them in a trunk. And he knows off red and mentions that her mother was I guess she was a doctor because she performs a vasectomy on him after they outlawed it because he makes the line I think uh, your mother your mom gave me the snip after they outlawed it so I guess Mm. once this regime takes hold they've outlawed all forms of birth control and surgeries that involve birth control obviously for men that would be a vasectomy so uh, that's the only time I remember her being mentioned is when he tells her that and that is interesting because that does set her mother up as well as somebody who is rebelling against the system and who is sticking by her own morality rather than that of the government yeah. that's coming to place in the book there's a backstory where her mo- she talks about her mom being a strong feminist and how it never yeah, really yeah, latched yeah, on yeah. with her so this is something that I think is really interesting about Um, The Handmaid's Tale in general and how I'm interested about how it's being read now and how it's being interpreted now into this show is that in the book there is also this undercurrent because, of course, it was written in the mid-80s, 1984, a very portentous year to write a dystopian novel, obviously. (laughs) And with Offred's mother, she's a feminist activist in the book and we see her in a very specific scene where she's burning porn magazines. And there's also this suggestion that Atwood has made that it's also this book is pushing back against the feminism of the 80s that was about repressing sexuality in a lot of ways because there was a combination between female sexuality Yes, being liberating, but also making you fall As back into object, these objectification, making you fall back into mm. these objectification roles, these patriarchal roles. So Margaret Atwood actually sets up her mother as a counterpoint mm. to this sort of, I suppose, far right feminism. Yep. And this is something that's actually quite important to Margaret Atwood's version of the story. I wonder if any of that current comes into the Hulu version at all. I don't think it is as as obvious. And maybe this is something that they'll go into in season two, perhaps now that we've had a very brief introduction into her mother. But in terms of the actual politics of feminism and that generational feminism, that's not something that the show has really touched on at all. The way that I view feminism in it, even with a character like Ofra, June and Moira, is that I feel like these are women who would call themselves feminists, particularly particularly June more than Moira, and maybe they're the type of women who would go to marches, but they're not the type of women who are activists in a really active sense. And so in the same way that in the book, June is a lot more complacent about her feminism, whereas her mother is the activist feminist. That 
type of feminist, I think, is still what June is. She's still kind of, I think, complacent. Ideologically, I think that she's feminist, but she's not. To be honest, that that again, I think, by maybe intentionally, you see that still happening today. Yeah. Like at post-Trump election in the United States, there was a march for seemingly everything. <laughs> and I think what you see is, yes, there's a lot of people out there marching to, I think, feel that sense of community and feel that sense of being around other people that think these things. And that's great. But at the end of the day, I think you can probably guarantee that the people making the decisions in Washington and in other governments probably could care less that Mm. you are out there marching. So it Mm. is great that is happening. And I think what you're saying is kind of what I saw, because I did go to several of those marches. And it's kind of filled with people who are out there when kind of after the fact almost yeah when this thing is already starting to go down and it's already happened and now they're like oh now they're awake and i think that's also a big thing in the show is that you know she makes the whole point in all the promos you'll see this about you know she said we were we were asleep before we didn't look up from our phones Mm. until it was too late and i think that's kind of where we're at kind of in the united states right now is yeah. we're in a little bit of, well, how did we get here with all the things that are happening politically in our country? There's been a lot of uh, fun made of the middle-class white feminist in the United yeah. States. And it's that woman who reads feminist essays, goes to the marches sometimes, but doesn't actually know how to... Make actionable change. Yes, there is very yeah. little done for actionable change. And look, to be honest... I mean, I relate to that in a sense as well. It's We have this privilege as white women, particularly as middle-class white women, that means that we get to engage intellectually in these issues. But beyond that, it often does feel like, well, I actually don't really know how to be more active than that. I don't know how to push this agenda. I don't, you know what I mean? So that's something that I think is really important in the show because it allows us to see how this, again, I don't want to call it complacency because I don't think it's complacency, but how the not knowing exactly how to act and how to respond can lead to that blindness that means exactly that we're not paying enough attention until after the fact. And uh, you, you see that aftermath and that is made abundantly clear in the show. And it's, you know, obviously the stakes and the outcome are far more extreme than anything that's happening currently, Mm -hmm. at least in the United States. So you do see where that complacency can get you. And I think that is a lot of what the show is speaking to is that these things can happen and you can't sit back and wait for them to happen. You have to recognize the signs of them happening and get involved and try and do actionable change and get instead of just going out and marching and saying, this is my Mm -hmm. viewpoint, you have to figure out how to make that viewpoint translate into legislation that will actually do something. And it's interesting because I think Offred or June, we see her transition into somebody who becomes much more willing to be the rebel once she has had her rights taken away in the most awful way as all of these women have become completely disenfranchised. They have become slaves in some sense. Yes. But until those rights are really taken, she's still not quite able to act but then we see her rebellion beginning to grow in little little bits and pieces the way that she becomes involved in this underground movement the mayday movement and the way that she even comments about the fact that she's started to learn how to read the faces of people in ways that she didn't ever pay any attention to before the way that she reads those little tiny subtle signals from the other handmaids who are involved in the movement as a way of communicating 
that rebellion in a subtle way. And then we see that action, I think, really in the, I think it's the last episode. I don't want to give away too many spoilers, but her refusal to act becomes something very significant. Yes. And it's something that has a ripple effect into those surrounding her who were then also able to refuse to act. And their refusal together becomes a powerful symbol of rebellion. That was well said without giving that scene away. <laughs> well done. Well done. <laughs> that was impressive, I got to say, because that is a very pivotal uh, moment in the show. And uh, I don't know that I could have described it any better without giving anything away. <laughs> Bravo. But it is, you know, and I think that character change is really interesting and the way that she becomes somebody, I think, has a lot more of a strength of character. Yeah, and I think it might be a little frustrating for some people because she is supposed to be the person that takes a while to kind of get the ball rolling. And I think it, to some people it will be like, why did it take you so long? And I think it's it's hard, especially in the beginning, to just see why there isn't like this automatic rebellion of what is happening mm. to you an automatic you know, instinct to just fight what is happening. But I think it paints that a little, the situation a little too simply for me when people do that. Yeah. My issue with the society, and I think there's no other way to get to where they're at in the society other than to have people not rebel against or have people not think about what is happening in the society. But there's a part where the Gilead takeover is happening. She goes to work one day and then all of a sudden these guys just show up and they have to fire all the women in the office and they're walking out and there's guys with machine guns standing there. Mm. And I think the, the thing that we've talked about several times is why is that not the point when you're like, okay, there's a problem. Time to get out. <laughs> it's time to get out. Yeah. And so that would have been it for me. They also make it clear that they've timed everything to happen at once. So yes. the women lose their jobs. They lose their access to their money at the same time so that they but limit their ability. Ability yeah. to then but the other thing is, run. is the other thing is, is right. If you live in a world where you have been privileged, if you live in a world where everything's gone the way it's gone for forever, and you're comfortable, and the world functions in a way that suits you, I think this is actually key. There's no reason why you would automatically assume that there isn't going to be a logical way out of that yeah, situation. Like, yeah. sure, there are guys with machine guns. Sure, you've been fired. But in a world that you've been brought up in where democracy functions and works, I think there's like a logical expectation that you might think, hang on, there's got to be someone will explain this to yeah. me and we will work this out because I live in a world where we can work this out. And the whole point is that, well, now you don't yeah. because overnight that whole world has changed. And we see Luke's react uh, in oh, the show. Man. Luke is a... <laughs> Oh, he's very frustrated because yeah. his reaction to this is like, I will look after you. It's going to be fine. And it's a really, and Moira is like, that's fucking patronizing. You can't, like, do you understand why that is not the response that we want to hear right now? And he's kind of like, oh, do you want me to cut my dick off? Like, yeah. what do you want from me? That scene is fantastic. You know, but again, it's like, he's not really losing as much and he's trying to help but he doesn't understand how it's different for him because it's not his rights that's being taken away it's not his job it's not his independence it's not his ability to function in the world as his own person that's been taken away and I think he feels their frustration but he doesn't know how to respond in an appropriate way because he's always had that sense that no, everything will be all right we'll adjust it'll be fine and he does kind of have that attitude for the vast majority of the time that he is on the screen. He is a very frustrating character. Yeah. You do get a very Luke-centric episode 
which I found really great. I really enjoyed that. I, episode, I enjoyed actually. it mostly because I think one of the things that people really enjoyed, because the big thing is, like I said in the book, is how did this all happen? So in the show, you're kind of dropped in the middle of it, and then it's all pieced back through flashbacks and various scenes. But what you see with the Luke episode is that you kind of get to see the immediate aftermath of mm. Gilead and the takeover. And he's in this town and it's just all these things are spray painted on the walls and the on the outside of all the buildings. And it's it's fresh. And so you actually get to see how the takeover has affected things. And it was like something from The Walking Dead or something. Oh, yeah, very much so. It's, that part <sighs> is very dystopian. And yeah, it's also interesting in the show to see the various uh, cycles, I guess, for lack of a better term, that the takeover occurs in, because at one point, June and uh, Alfred uh, and Luke are still in the city and still able to kind of go about their business. While we're also learning later on that other parts of the country have already been completely taken over. All the fertile women have been rounded up and they've already started mm-hmm. doing, you know, early versions of what ends up being these red centers where they train the handmaids. And so that episode, while Luke is extremely frustrating as a character, is great because it gives you that kind of fresh yep. view of the post-Gilead takeover and to see what the world was like. And I want to, I want to talk about Moira because Moira is the character who is more active in her rebellion. And we see this immediately in the Red Center where June is sort of in the book is quite different in this. June is a lot more afraid to act. Moira isn't. Hang on. I need to interrupt for a second. Why is she called June? In the show. Okay. Oh, we actually don't know. It's revealed that that's her because she doesn't have a name. Yeah. No, in, in, the no. book, in, the in the book, she's only offered. I think in the book, there is a woman who's talked about called June yes. in the Red Center, but she's never necessarily paralleled to Offred. Mm. So is that where they've picked up the name June from? Yeah. And I, I believe Atwood mentioned that that was never her intention for her name to be no, June. Yeah. But, that she was okay with fans. Because I think there was some fan thought beforehand that also that June was the character's name. And so she has just kind of been okay with it. So she said she's not too bothered by the fact that in the book, you don't really know her name. But in the show, yeah, that's... So I apologize for us referring to June. So Moira is this really active character and she escapes not only the Red Center, but she also has another escape later. Very similar... She's got this down pat. She knows what she's doing. She knows where our weapons are. Won't give too much away. But Moira is the character who we see being more actively rebellious. And there's also in the TV show versus the book, we also have a very obvious issue of race, right? (laughs) The book, race is not really mentioned, but I think we can generally assume that most of these characters are white. In the book, uh, because the race issue has cropped up a lot recently (laughs) um, regarding the TV show. And in the book, I think it's said that the Jewish people were rounded up and given the opportunity to go back or go to Israel. And then that all the other minorities were basically rounded up and put on a boat. Mm. And basically Mm. what they said is, we're going to go take you back to your country that you originated from. And then to my knowledge, I believe, and I could be wrong about this, so if I am, I apologize to someone who knows more than me, but they ended up just dumping all of them in the ocean. Yeah, that's. I think that that is implied. I'm pretty sure I have that sense as well, that the boats basically sunk in the uh, ocean. Yes, and now uh, the race issue on this show is something that has crept up and has gotten a little louder as the time has gone on because I think people thought they were going to address it because there are Luke in the show is African-American or at least mixed Mm. and also Moira is obviously African-American and there are several African-American handmaids and including there's also at least one and several at least 
commanders and higher ups in the regime. Yeah, which is definitely not the case. Look, I appreciate the diversity, of course, but the thing that the show doesn't do is acknowledge that difference that we were talking about in privilege, right? And that's, yes. I think, the interesting thing yes. is, in my imagination, this is really, really just my interpretation of this. June is a character who is a little bit more complacent because she isn't used to having to act beyond that intellectual engagement with these issues, right? Because she's not from a minority, right? right. Whereas a character like Moira, I wonder if perhaps because her experience of the world is different, her level of privilege in the world prior to Gilead has been different, right? I wonder if that's what makes her a character who is more able, more likely, more ready to be more actively rebellious. Uh, I would think so. And she's just a more rebellious character the way she's written to begin with. So I don't think it's a far stretch for us to see her mm. be the rebellious one. That is kind it's of certainly been... inherent in her character, but it is. I don't know, maybe I'm just adding too much into this, but I just, I kind of wonder if it is because she she understands more, perhaps more than June, what the dangers are of these rights have been, you know, starting to take away. You know, and that's, I think the other frustrating part about the show is that that would seem like a natural conclusion to come to, but they never address it. Mm. They never address the race issue at all. And I, mm. I think the overarching point coming from people and it's being louder and louder is that that's not very realistic and that especially when the Rita who is the Martha who basically takes care of the cooking and cleaning for uh, the family that Offred is with is also I believe biracial and so when you have minority people in those situations and you don't address the fact that that is occurring and the history that comes with that and all the stigma that comes with that, as well as the obvious themes that the show and the book have from slavery. The mm -hmm. fact that the show did not choose to address it at all mm. in any way, shape, mm. or form, I think was a big misstep in yeah. a show that didn't have very many missteps, but it was a big one. And it was interesting this week, actually, I think yesterday I posted a story that Bruce Miller, the head writer, made a point that, you know, uh, that they realized, especially getting online and seeing all the conversations that were being had about the race issue on the show, that they're definitely putting more of a focus on mm. trying to write that into the show and address it more next season. So whether that occurs or not, or whether that's just lip service, I'm not sure. But I know that him putting that out there kind of puts the onus on them to make it happen. So I'd say at least encouraging. But I actually think that that's probably a good place for us to wrap up with okay. now anyway, is basically just talking ahead into the race issue is something that they've flagged as something that they, they actually think they need to address. So where is it going now? Like how far into the novel has the series actually gotten and what's left to be done? The novel is basically finished. The novel's finished, but the yeah. show show is continuing. So, yes. so where do we go from here? That's the good. That's the question. Yeah. So the book, the book and the show end in very much the same fashion. I will say that. But there's an important difference that yes changed the the tension of the ending quite drastically that I didn't like in the TV show. I have to really? say. Really? Oh, that's interesting. We'll have yeah. to have that conversation another day. There was a little reveal that I thought ruined the tension. Huh. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, but yeah. I'd say the interesting is the vast majority of what you learn in the book over a long period of time occurs probably within the first few episodes. Yeah. And while that might be, some people will hear that and be like, oh, that's not going to be a very faithful adaptation. It couldn't be more to the contrary. I think because it was a stream of consciousness novel, the, the extrapolation of the society, the things that happened and the characters being more developed obviously had to happen. And the way they've done it is completely faithful to the story. 
and having Margaret Atwood involved from the jump definitely, I think, helped and gives it a little more credibility. Whereas if she was just like a writing credit because she wrote the story and didn't have any hand in helping create this the world that they've created for the show, you might be a little more suspicious. But the things that are touched on in the book do go by very quickly. The rest of it fits right in, and I do not think that anybody who's read the book will be disappointed. I think there will be things that they will say, oh, that's different, but nothing crazy different. Yeah, it's faithful to the core and just extrapolates in some really important and interesting ways that I want to talk more about, but that's okay. Another day? (laughs) We've we've run out of time, so we're going (laughs) to have to wrap it up there. I suppose that's that interesting idea that what Atwood's done is she hasn't just created a story, she's created a world. Mm. So in which case, really, there's room to take that anywhere you can um, in future series because it's it's a world that has functioning rules and laws and what you can do within that, mm. I suppose, gives you boundless yeah. ideas <laughs> for what might happen next. I, I, I'm very interested to see where it goes because while they do give you a similar ending to the book, they don't necessarily give you any indication of what lies ahead. So it's mm. very interesting that they the way that they put the world together and then kind of leave you really hanging on a cliffhanger. You do get a little bit of information about several other characters, but there's also some you don't have any information of. And so they do definitely do a great job of leaving you wanting more, which I think is the smart thing to do if you're a television mm-hmm. show. They've done a great job of that. So I don't think anyone who is a Margaret Atwood Handmaid's Tale fan or a dystopian fan will be disappointed by this show. It is remarkably done. I agree. And the performances overall, the I cannot say enough about the production value of the show in oh, general. Can I just it, say something that I really admire about the production? I think this is important to the to the heart of the show as well. Is the fact that like the handmaids, Elizabeth Moss and um I believe maybe Alexis Blendel as well, filmed without any makeup. Yes. Like they're not even wearing the makeup that you wear to make it look like you're, you're not, not wearing, wearing makeup. They are not wearing makeup. And at first I was just like, whoa, what is it about their faces that looks strange? And then I realized, oh, they're just genuinely, they look like normal people. <laughs> so I really admire that. And I think it has a really good effect. Before we let you go, um, we'll just let you tell us about what you guys are going to be doing with your podcast in the break between now and when we get more Handmaid's Tale. What's on your guys' agenda for the near future? You're still going to be podcasting. We are. So our intent at this point is to kind of go to a monthly format because obviously there is no show to talk about, but there are obviously no shortage of topics to talk about when it comes to the themes of this show because they are quite wide um, in variety. Uh, so my our intent as a show is to talk about more of the issues, do some more interviews, which we did a few of during the uh, season, not quite as many as I would like to, but just due to the time constraints, and to kind of feature some of the people that we have had contact with and that we've met through this process, which has been incredible, have them featured on our show as well. So the intent is to keep this going and to keep it more topical and News about the show, news about the things that are happening in the world that pertain to the themes of the show. So feminism, you know, race relations, immigration, all of that is inherent in this story. And so there are plenty of topics to talk about uh, without a show. So we're going to have plenty of stuff to do and just keep things going and hopefully people will keep listening. Awesome. And of course, if our Australian listeners are about to settle in and get ready to watch The Handmaid's Tale, definitely tune in to Mayday after you've watched each episode because there's some really great discussions breaking down. Like you guys go into a lot of detail about 
every yeah. aspect of the show. It's fantastic. So um, yeah. have a listen if you if you want that good, robust intellectual discussion and entertaining as well. Thank you so much for joining us today to chat about The Handmaid's Tale. We really appreciate it. And um, hopefully, yeah, some of our Deviant Women listeners will head on over to um, Mayday. catch up on all things Mayday and also learn why it's called Mayday as well. Yeah. If, if you don't exactly. already know, there's a secret in that too. So excellent. Thank you so much for joining us today, Justin. Oh, it's great, great to have joined you. Uh, hopefully we'll be able to talk again. Thank you very much for joining us once again. And uh, we hope that we have enlightened you a little bit to The Handmaid's Tale mm. if you were unaware of it beforehand. There's so much that we could have talked about. I really could have kept discussing all the themes that we didn't even really get into the characters. I could talk for hours about that. Well, luckily for you, Lauren. Oh, yes. That's actually something that we may well be doing in yeah. the near future. We've been deviously plotting away a little bit with Justin. And uh, we're going to bring some little mini-sodes to you real soon where we're going to have some bite-sized chunks and a breakdown of some of these key characters from The Handmaid's Style, which I'm really excited about because... I really wanted to talk about the actual women in this story a little bit more. So Yeah, so we've given you much more of a gentle sort of overview yeah. today. Picking up on some of those really important, like, political and social themes, I think. Yeah, the kind of things that we enjoy talking about. We, we did, and I could have, yeah, yeah. Keep got forever. So there'll be more opportunities for that in the near future. Mm. In the meantime, if you enjoy the show, then please... Like us on iTunes. Give us a review. A review is really one of the best ways that you can support us. It helps other people to find us. It helps us rise in those charts. We have charted a few times in the Society and Culture <laughs> charts, which is really exciting. And with your reviews, we can stay in there or we can get, stay get, in the charts. get back in there. <laughs> get back in those charts. Um, and also don't forget that, of course, we opened our Patreon. Yes. Oh, my God. We've already got some Patreon supporters and it is incredible to know that people are willing to put their money into this thing. And honestly, I don't want to sound like I'm gushing or anything, but it means so much. <laughs> it to gives us. us it gives us the warm and fuzzies. It does so much. So thank you, thank you for those of you who are supporting us. Yeah, and please go and check out the Patreon as well because there are some awesome rewards. Mm. In the near future, we'll also have a merch store. We'll let you know more about that when yep. that is all sorted and ready to go. Yeah. But I think that's it for this week. Yeah, so jump on Twitter, tweet at us, jump on Facebook. Um, we love having conversations with you all about the podcast and about the women that we talk about. If you've got any juicy Handmaid's Tale bits you'd like to share, please yeah. do. And do make sure that you check out Mayday as well uh, as you're watching The Handmaid's Tale. So thank you once again, and we'll see you all next time. See you next time.